testimony. So we are going to look at Messiah described. Let's even talk about that first word, Messiah. That's the Old Testament word that we'll actually see in the scriptures in a few moments. The parallel word is Christ in the New Testament, and it means anointed one. So we're going to see a description of the anointed one. And Isaiah does a wonderful job of doing this for us and what he lays out here in sort of an item by item. The passage won't be unfamiliar to you whatsoever, but I trust that we will learn some uh, wonderful truths or at least have truths reaffirmed here today as we consider the Messiah and the description that's given to him. Before we do that, let me talk about Isaiah just for a moment. It's in the category of major prophet, 66 chapters, almost like a mini Bible, as some had said, considering the Bible has 66 books. And it was written approximately 700 years before the event that we're gonna be discussing, which is the birth of Christ and his incarnation. So 700 years and a perfect spot on description as the spirit, carried them along, the Bible says, bore them along, and as the, the scriptures are God-breathed, literally theopneustos is that word, God-breathed out, and used these men to pen these words of God for us. And so a prophet like Isaiah, as a preacher, would have had a message to tell to his generation. And preaching has that sense of a forth telling. You let that message be known. But also with some prophecy, and of course this one is a classic example of that, you have that foretelling aspect, that future aspect. And we're going to see that uh, today and we're going to conclude by coming full circle to the New Testament scriptures where the prophesied event took place. Now, of course, for us, it's a historical fact, but uh, looking from the standpoint of Isaiah, giving us words 700 years before the event itself. So prophecy does have that, that foretelling, that giving of the message to the generation, then also often the future aspects as well. So if you're there in Isaiah chapter nine, I'm going to read the first seven verses. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, Upon them hath the light shine. Thou hast multiplied the nation and has not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy and harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is confused is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, 
the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see here in particular in verse 6, this description that Isaiah gives to us. I'd like to read verse 6 one more time. That way we have it in our minds as we go through it, basically word by word or line by line. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So we're going to walk through these individual terms that give us this description of Messiah. And the first thing that we see from the writings here of Isaiah is that a child is born. A child is born. Now, of course, this is a very special birth, and we've already sung about some of those aspects here this morning. But in the flesh, God would come. The incarnation, we read from John chapter 1 that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. As we considered what John said about the word, the word was eternal. As uh, some of the statements of uh, earlier Christianity that uh, he was begotten, eternally begotten, not created. The eternal sonship is a very important doctrine. But Christ being the second person of the Trinity always existed, but now a miracle would take place. And this mystery, as the Apostle Paul talked about it, would come to pass in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is that prophecy that a child would come. Yes, the Word, the eternal Word, would be made flesh. But then it gets more specific, as he says, not only will a child be born, but unto us a son will be given. So this promise is a male child. And uh, one of the things that we saw from our hymn that uh, Wesley Penn was second Adam from above. And that certainly fit, fit the meter of the song, but uh, I like to think of him as the last Adam. And uh, of course, Adam means man, Adam, the Hebrew word. And so we would have the God-man coming to us. And you don't have to go too far in the scriptures to see the specifics of that prophecy. If you'll turn back to another great text, as it were, a big text, it's Isaiah 7:14. Isaiah 7:14. And what does Isaiah say here concerning this child, this son? Well, he says, "Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign." Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here the specifics are also given to us. Yes, a virgin. So this very miraculous birth is going to take place. Of course, we have the privilege of hindsight and reading the words that were told to Mary, reading the words that were told to Joseph in the Gospels. But we see here Isaiah again, 700 years before the event. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. 
It's interesting, the church that uh, I grew up in as a child, not too far from here, was Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so I learned early on as a child, and of course the New Testament scriptures gives it to us as well, that Emmanuel is God with us. So as we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, literally God would come in the flesh. Uh, as, uh, you think of um, the Old Testament scriptures as the uh, tabernacle was uh, temporary until the temple was built. And uh, we also have the concept of Christ tabernacling among men or the tenting as Paul talked about, this tent that we live in. Well, Christ took upon himself human flesh and uh, Philippians chapter 2 is a wonderful passage of what Christ gave up in order to take upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. So a son, a male, a child, the God-man would be born. So very specific about this one who would come. Now there are many other facts that we can flesh out if we were to look at other passages, but we're going to stick to where we are here in our passage. And then after Isaiah tells us that we have a child to be born, a son given, he lists his names or titles, if you would. His name shall be called. And because we are in this holiday season, I can also think about hearing Handel's Messiah playing in my head. His name shall be called. And then the list that we have here before us. And the first thing that we see here is that he is called wonderful. Now this is something that you may be aware of, but as the authorized version gives us two words, separate, wonderful and counselor, it literally is the idea of the wonder of a counselor. It's describing the counselor himself because something that is wonderful is in the category of something extraordinary and therefore, as God is incomprehensible, this is humanly incomprehensible. But uh, wonderful also suggests that the Son has infinite wisdom. And if you think of infinite wisdom and thinking about the attributes of God, you would think of omniscience. And certainly that would be the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though it's the wonder of a counselor, we can still say his name is wonderful. Jesus, our Lord, he is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord. He's the great shepherd, the rock of all ages. Almighty God is he. Bow down before him, love and adore him. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord. I have no problems whatsoever of using the term wonderful as a standalone term. I don't think any of us here do. But in the context of what we have, we have the wonder of a counselor. And the counselor has the ability to make decrees. And certainly that is a right, a prerequisite that is given to God or a requisite given to God. And Christ has that right. One of the things that Christ said is all power had been given to him in heaven and in earth. And as we read our initial text this morning in John chapter 1, without him was not anything made that was made. So all these things are pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the wonderful counselor, the Lord Jesus. So as a child, a son, and the wondrous counselor that he is, we see also 
in our verse that he is called the mighty God, the mighty God. What we are talking about here concerning the person of Christ is that he is our defender or our guardian. As mighty God, he is our defender or guardian. And the term here that we're reading applies to deity. When we read mighty God, we are talking about deity. So here, again, as we speak of God in his power, Christ in his power, it also speaks of his majesty. And the scriptures speak of that, uh, the majesty of God and the descriptions of the majesty of God. So God, then, as the Lord Jesus Christ is, he would be the great defender of his people or the guardian of his people. So a great comfort to us as believers, knowing that Christ is our defender slash guardian, the one who defends us, the one who looks out for us, the one who cares for us, the one who protects us. You can think of that term as well when you consider the defender-guardian relationship that we have with the mighty God. Also, we have another term that could initially maybe pose confusion when we look at it, but there's no need for that to take place uh, after we understand what's being said. And that is, he is called the everlasting father, the everlasting father. Now, you may wonder, was Isaiah having a moment of Trinitarian confusion here when he called the son the everlasting father? Well, we just have to dig in a little further and find out literally what he is saying. And the term that he is using, the Hebrew expression, is a father of eternity. So everlasting father literally has the idea of father of eternity. So it's not speaking of the son's relationship to the father, but his relationship to, the t to time. So this, again, is speaking of the attributes of God, maybe in a, I don't know, somewhat quieter way. You don't see it maybe jumping out there, but that's exactly what is taking place here. Christ is above time. Christ, as I said a moment ago, is the eternal son, begotten, not created. And so the miraculous that we're seeing is looking from the Old Testament perspective that a son would come. A son would be born. A virgin would conceive and bear this son that, as we saw, his name is Emmanuel. So it highlights several things. His eternity, that he is above time, but also that he is the sovereign one. He is the sovereign one. So the father of eternity, one who is above time. So we don't have to look at that and think, okay, this doesn't make sense. Because in what we read, maybe it does seem a bit confusing, Christ as the everlasting Father. But then we understand exactly what Isaiah is communicating to us, that Christ is the Father of eternity. He is eternal, eternally the Son. And then we find a final term here in this passage, that he is the Prince of Peace. And some explanation is in order, again, concerning a term that he uses, prince, prince. Because 
when you think of a prince, you may think of, at least as we think of royalty, that that's a king that's in waiting. It's kind of like a, a second class position almost, prince and then becoming king. But uh, that's not at all what Isaiah is communicating. A prince is a term that's used for a ruler. It designates a ruler. And the scriptures actually use that term about God, and in this case, about Christ as God. So I want us to look at a passage, a cross-reference to this, that shows us uh, a combination of these terms from uh, the prophecy of Daniel. So if you'll turn, if you don't mind, Daniel chapter 8, just for a moment. Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to consider verse 25. Sorry, one more page, nine, because both terms are used, but Daniel 9, I'm one page away, Daniel 9, 25. Daniel writes, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, there it is, the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. And then, actually, I'll read verse 26. Messiah shall be cut off, not for himself, but for the people. So there's kind of a combination, a contrast between princes, uh, the prince of darkness and the uh, prince of peace, the Lord Jesus. So it's not a, a lower class term when we read the term prince. It's obviously a very important, a very proper term. And what we can say then, as we said that he's the sovereign one, that as prince of peace, he is the sovereign administrator of peace. So the Messiah, the prince, as we just read, is the prince of peace, the ruler of peace. Because, my friends here today, we know that when it comes to peace, we can only understand it rightly, truly rightly, as we understand it biblically. This world talks about peace. Uh, even at Christmas time, you hear songs and discussions about peace. But what does the Old Testament tell us concerning peace, at least from a secular standpoint? They're crying, peace, peace when there is no peace. I think of a guy right now that if I said his name, you would know him, I think, in a secular sense. And one of his uh, catchphrases is peace and love, peace and love. And I really think he understands neither uh, when it comes right down to it, biblically speaking. But uh, peace in the 1960s, they had a sign they had this sign, you know, that was used even when one of our former presidents, you know, he would make this sign uh, as well. But they talked about peace, peace, when there is no peace. So we're going to transition now to as a prince, a sovereign administrator of peace and what that means. The best commentary on the scripture is the scripture itself. And that's why when you look at something biblically, seeing it in other places is very important, especially with the fulfillment that we find in the New Testament scriptures. So I'd like for us to, as we know that Christ was made as the promise to us that we're talking about here, 
how he made known to us through his own words that he is the Prince of Peace. If you'll turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, or just simply uh, listen as I read to you what Christ said concerning peace and as he was the Prince of Peace, is the Prince of Peace. He says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So there must be some sort of peace that Christ alludes to that people get in their minds that uh, equates to peace. You know, people that talk about peace or peace movement or peace lovers, whatever. But uh, when it comes to peace from a secular perspective, I think they're generally thinking peace as the absence of things. I mean, there's no war and there's no conflict and there's no strife. Things that when it comes to peace, there's this absence of something. But what Christ is saying and what I want to press upon you this morning is that peace really isn't, for the believer, the absence of something, but the presence of someone. My peace I give unto you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives, the Lord Jesus said, but the peace that he gives to us. And isn't it interesting as we emphasize Christ as our peace, Christ as the Prince of Peace, Paul sums it up very simply in Ephesians chapter two. He says, and here's the words he uses, for he himself, of course that's Christ, the Lord Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. Paul also says that we have the peace that even passes human understanding, the peace that you've been given sometimes is really hard to communicate or to articulate. But if we have that peace, that peace that passes understanding, we know that we have it, that peace that is given by God. So Christ himself being our peace. So peace really isn't the absence of things. I mean, technically, okay, if they're not at war, I guess they'd be at peace, right? If you take the contrast, I'm thinking of Solomon, you know, time for this, time for that, time for war, time for peace. But it's much bigger than that. And the believer can understand that because of what Christ has done. He has become our peace. We understand peace by his presence. He is the Prince of Peace. And of course, when we talk about people crying peace, peace when there is no peace, the Prince of Peace who gives us personal peace when he comes again, it will be eternal peace. Eternal peace. No other Adam necessary. No, even though and I'm not, again, knocking second Adam, but when the last Adam came, he will come again. His first coming, his incarnation that we've talked about so extensively today, there is that second coming yet of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, like my new barber said, we're ready for Jesus. We're ready for Jesus. Now, this harkens me back as we come to a conclusion this morning. And that's only 30 more minutes to the, con with the conclusion. No, just kidding. Uh, but the, the conclusion, we need to come full circle because we've talked about this wonderful prophecy, the specifics that Isaiah has laid out for us that articulate all these wonderful uh, truths, these attributes about God. 
then as we've already come full circle to a point coming to the New Testament, we need to continue that. And let me do so by way of illustration. I think it's probably well known, right, that I'm a Hoosier, first generation. I've probably said that every time I've come, not that you've forgotten, but uh, I'm, I'm glad of, of where I've come from and uh, being here uh, back in my home area and being with you all. And I think of, from the time that I lived here until now, things are very different. And a lot of that has to do with technology. Now, I have a cousin that lives nearby, right outside of Greenfield, closer to Maxwell. You all probably know where that is. And uh, I asked him, Jim, what do you think about technology? He said, they had to drag me kicking and screaming. That's kind of how I am when it comes to technology, because I don't like it. I mean, I remember back in the early 80s getting my Atari. And some of you like, what is he talking about? But that was big time. All right, my friend, you know what I'm talking about, the Atari, you know. And, but before I had Atari, I had Coleco. And it had a black and white screen with two paddles and a ball. That went, and you tried to hit that. But, I mean, that was it. That was the excitement. That was big time, though. I mean, wow. Well, it's, it's changed big time uh, since then, since the Pong days and the Atari days. But one of the things that also changed is that we had four TV stations. We had ABC, NBC, CBS, and then Channel 4, as it was, WTTV. Now, if we worked really hard at it, we could take our, uh, uh, we had an antenna, and uh, you could take the cable off and put it over here and kind of screw it in, and you could barely get uh, Muncie PBS station. And it's like really fuzzy and snowy, but otherwise, you know, it was clear. But every year as a child, I looked forward to Christmas specials. And you could only see them one time, once a year. You didn't have, you know, VCRs and DVD players and computers unless you didn't have it. So you look forward to that one time a year that you could sit down and watch a Christmas special, at least for me. I, I look forward to that. And there was one that uh, really put forth a message that uh, certainly doesn't uh, sit well today with society, but it's a message they need to hear. And it was the Charlie Brown Christmas. And uh, if you've ever seen this, or haven't seen this, you need to see this, because an exasperated Charlie Brown is trying to direct a program, and nobody's really cooperating. And so he takes his megaphone, and he slams it down, and he says, can anyone tell me what Christmas is really all about? And a little boy with a blanket says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he reads... Luke 2. And that's very different, isn't it, from what you see today, talking about technology, what, what is being communicated. But he reads Luke chapter 2. Is anyone with me on this? You, you've seen this. He reads it. And uh, actually, though we didn't, uh, Pastor reversed the order, they closed with the singing of Hark the Herald Angels Sing on the Christmas special. So obviously, when we ask the question, what is Christmas all about, we've been talking about it. And I know a few days afterwards, but Still, the message is unchanging. So, I want us to go to Luke 2 and to see what Isaiah told us 700 years before the fact. We have Dr. Luke, the Gentile, the only Gentile, to write Scripture who speaks about the God-man and especially his humanity, the perfect man. If you had an overall theme of Luke's gospel, it is the God-man. The man and the humanity aspect, the perfect man. So let's see uh, those words here that 
are familiar to us. Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see the thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe, lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So Messiah described, now we see again historically, biblically, the revelation of that fact, the realization of Christ in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. On the second part of my truly conclusion here, I want to share something with you. And since we are in the gift giving season and pastor mentioned a book that is available to each family, I want to uh, share something in closing with you. And in two ways, first of all, this little book that I have is a great blessing and it's uh, available in different formats as far as uh, probably even online, but you know, paperback and this little uh, bonded leather book, but it's called The Valley of Vision, A Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotions. And uh, I would commend this to you. And uh, if it meant maybe me sending some and putting them on the table back there for you all to have one, that would be great. But it is a wonderful devotional tool. Uh, I talked to a, a brother out in Pennsylvania, and he thinks this is one of the finest books that a person can have as a devotional tool. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's published by Banner of Truth. And I thought as I prepared this sermon, there might be a fitting conclusion in this book. And sure enough, there is, because it is a prayer, 
but it is something that I want us to think together as our heart before the Lord as we have received his word this morning. So the one that I've chosen, fittingly, is called the gift of gifts. Again, this was a Puritan prayer in its day, so it's a prayer that's been preserved for us, but I want us to think of it in those terms here this morning as I read it to you. Again, it's called the gift of gifts. O source of all good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear son, begotten, not created, my redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute, his self-emptying, incomprehensible, his infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders. He, became, he came below to raise me above, was born like me that I might become like him. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to him, he draws near on wings of grace to raise me to himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them an indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. Herein is wisdom. When I was undone with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost. As man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for me. O God, take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my mind. Let me hear good tidings of great joy and in hearing, believe, rejoice, praise, adore. My conscience bathe in an ocean of repose. My eyes uplifted to a reconciled father Place me with ox, ass, camel, goat to look with them upon my Redeemer's face and in him account myself delivered from sin. Let me with Simeon clasp the newborn child to my heart, embrace him with undying faith, exulting that he is mine and I am his. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give me no more. Very fitting words, I think, for our hearts in summary of what we have read from these words here of Isaiah today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the Messiah, the Anointed One, was cut off. And as the scripture said, not for himself, but for his people. He came and, as we've just read, lived the life that we could not live, a perfect obedience to give us that perfect righteousness, dying in our place, being buried, rising again the third day, ascending into heaven and making the promise that he would come again. So Christ truly is all in all because he loved us and gave himself for us. So, Father, may we truly be ready to hear and to know and to love the Lord Jesus, 
Yes, even the triune God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. Oh Lord, we are not able, but you are. We know that Christ says that apart from him, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So by your spirit now, Father, please take these truths. May they find lodging in our hearts and minds. And may we truly be changed into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray all these things. Amen.